Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Well, there's something I do at camp. See, if you like this morning, you might actually want to come to camp and hear me do this more, but there's something I do at camp every year. And uh, because just telling, telling like, like preaching and teaching all the time gets old, right? Even Jesus didn't do that. He stopped sometimes to tell stories. And so this morning, I wrote a story for you. And uh, at camp, we have a special name for it. It's called Storytime with Pastor Tom. And so I've asked... I've asked for a chair to be brought on stage so I can sit and have a little bit of carpet time with you. <laughs> Just like kindergarten. I was thinking it would be really good. You all disappeared, but <laughs> I thought it would be really good if we could have all the kids come up to the front like they used to do, you know, at the MB church, children's feature or whatever, but we won't do that. <laughs> but I am going to read you a story that I wrote over the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's going to, don't worry, I'll preach eventually too. But um, maybe you won't want me to. This story will just be so good. But let's, uh, let's get into it. Mr. Wellington wasn't a doctor. He never claimed to be a doctor. The sign on his door did not say doctor. But that didn't change the fact that in a small western town in the 1800s, he was treated as a doctor by the local townspeople. Mr. Wellington was very intelligent. And as the local apothecary, or in today's language, the town pharmacist, he was often the closest thing to a doctor you would find. He understood which medicines and vitamins were appropriate for the various ailments that afflicted young and old alike. The only other person who could help the sick quite like him was old Mrs. Malady. She carried down her family's secret home remedies of various plant saps and animal fats and could offer a relief to a multitude of complaints and conditions. Unfortunately, her bizarre concoctions were so disgusting that most people tried the austere Mr. Wellington before the aged Mrs. Malady. Mr. Wellington tirelessly pursued his profession throughout his life and did thoroughly enjoy helping the townsfolk, his neighbors. However, however, he never fully adopted what you might call a compassionate bedside manner. Rather, he exhibited a bit of the it-will-only-hurt-for-a-moment mentality as he triaged everything from impalements to influenza, poison ivy to poison ingested. His classic caveat preceding any medical attention was, I'm not a doctor, but... To, Mil to Bill Burns, who'd been kicked in the face by a horse, I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure your face is smashed and needs some attention. To Burns' kid who got a rusty nail through the foot, I'm not a doctor, child, but one cannot live with metal in their foot. To Mrs. Burns, I'm not a family counselor, but you may want to limit your husband's care of your children. And Mr. Wellington was usually right in his diagnosis and successful in his prescription as far as he was able to cure the curable. He understood his limitations. And when injury or illness was incurable, he mustered as much compassion as he was capable of and would suggest that they send for the pastor as he had helped them as far as he could. They were going to die. 
So between the medicines of Mr. Wellington and the, the apothecary and the homegrown herbal remedies handed out the back door of Mrs. Malady's cottage, most health issues were cared for and the other ailments were simply not bad enough to whine about. Until a coach wagon bumped into town one June morning. Presumably the driver went by the same name emblazoned in gold paint on the side of his carriage. Dr. K.B. Shep, MDND and all-round nice guy. His personality was as big as his carriage and as polished as his gold letters. Even his team of horses seemed filled with self-importance as the steeds of an apparently distinguished traveling medical practitioner. They pawed and pranced about like some cavalier show horse. Any visitor would have caused a stir in this backwoods grovel of a town, and soon, in anticipated fashion, townsfolk started assembling on the wooden boardwalks of the buildings that lined the muddy main street. A doctor? My soul, what a privilege, said Mrs. Cook, the baker's wife. He doesn't look old enough to be a doctor, chimed Mrs. Pinnock. Maybe not a doctor, but he looks good nonetheless, drawled Bethy B. McTavish, followed by the cooing of her maiden clique. Mr. Wellington came out of his shop as well to observe the commotion with poorly veined disdain. Wasting no time whatsoever, Dr. K.B. Shep swung the sides of his wagon open, exposing shelves of small glass bottles filled with a curious purple liquid still swirling from the wagon's abrupt entrance. With the sides open and the bottles sparkling in the midday sun, the good doctor paused for a moment, allowing the spectacle to draw attention from the crowd, and then he launched into a sales pitch as smooth and silky as his tightly drawn ponytail. My friends, and yes, we can call each other friends. I have been sent on a divine mission to relieve you fine folks from the many sufferings and ailments that you endure. Oh my, said Mrs. Burns, a divine mission. A divine mission from a divine man, drawled Bethy B. More cooing ensued. Dr. Shep continued, friends, let me ask you what ails you right now. <laughs> that was a little British there. Right now. <laughs> It's hard keeping a, an accent, just you know. Are there any souls brave enough to voice their deepest inner pain for all to hear? His sharp staccato voice trailed off into a prolonged silence. I ache when a storm is coming, said one gentleman. Thank you, sir. I hear you. A few moments later, someone else said, I have a cold. Yes, yes, a cold. Who else is languishing away, dripping the very vitality out of the nasal cavity? Hands started going up around the crowd. I see that hand. I see you. You have a cold too? Such a shame, such a shame. This town may be on the brink of an all-out influenza-demic. I've heard about these kinds of sicknesses that sweep through towns and leave shelves bare and tissues of tissues and the ground running with a snot of a thousand blows. Hands flew over mouths in alarm. But I have a solution. I have a remedy that will stop not only this dastardly epidemic in the tracks, but take a bite out of any illness. My friends, lend me your ears. What I possess in this little bottle will, in only drops a day, cure your stormy aches. It will heal a cut and stop a bleeding nose. Friends, 
I met a gentleman in a village not far from here. He was as bald as the day he was born. As a child, he grew a full head of hair, but it fell out far too early for him to land a wife. After three days of applying my formula to his scalp, the slightest traces of hair appeared. Three weeks later, his hair was so thick he needed a horse's comb to brush through it. On a whim, he ingested the smallest amount and even grew hair on his chest. You may ask, how do I know this? I know this because this man was me. No! Yes, it's true. I was bald. And the miracle of this formula that I have developed is that when you take it, it will heal you precisely where you need it. Oh, that really is a miracle, said Mrs. Burns. But wait, I have more stories. I have seen a child with a broken arm heal in only six weeks. He faithfully took the medicine, and when his cast came off, bam, it was better. I poured it in the ear of a deaf man, and he regained his hearing. It cures nausea, migraines, tinnitus, arthritis, and bronchitis. Are you homesick for a long-distance lover? I have the answer. Are you too gassy or too tall? I have the cure. The crowd was admittedly gobsmacked, whereas at first they listened with silent curiosity. Shep's delivery elicited nods and then audible agreement. And by the time he finished, the town folk were as expressive as the foot stomping, arms a raising, hallelujah shouting, charismatic church on the edge of town. But then a deep voice spoke. How much? Every eye went to Mr. Wellington's voice of reason. How much, Mr. Shep? How much will you, will, you will you charge for this miraculous cure-all? I'm sure it isn't free. Good sir, I can offer free samples to any who desire, but the big bottle is a buck fifty. Ha! Do you know how long we work for a buck fifty in these parts? Why, most of us make barely a dime a day. A dime to eat, feed the livestock, Repair the roof, buy pencils for the school children. Why, for a buck fifty, I could hire a wagon to take me as far as Blumenort and back. <laughs> Mr. Shep was undeterred. Mr. Mr. Wellington of Wellington's Apothecary. Oh, I see. Well, the truth be told, it's often the doctors who struggle most to accept the supernatural. I am not a doctor, and I never pretend to claim to be one. And I am as open to the miraculous as the Pentecostals down the road, but I just don't believe that God can be bottled and sold. Well, Mr. Wellington, I'm not trying to buy God, but I am selling the fruit of the brain that God gave me. Why don't you take a sample and analyze it? Oh, that won't be necessary. Every head turned to the crooked form of Mrs. Melody. Mr. Shep's face suddenly went pale. Why is that, Mrs. Melody? Wellington asked. Because that little portion is vinegar and prune juice. <laughs> That's why it's purple. I know, because I sold it to him. <laughs> and she scuttled off, giggling to herself. <laughs> All eyes turned back to Mr. Shep. You could almost see the wheels of his imagination spinning a story and a story he did spin. Friends, friends, 
What does it matter what the ingredients are if they work? It's true that my miraculous formula is vinegar and the humble prune, but in the combination of the two, in the volume that I use is my proprietary property. Look, Mr. Wellington said, vinegar is good for an upset stomach and acid reflux. And prune juice, well, besides being tasty, it has some useful applications. I can sell them both to you in an eight-ounce bottle. I'll even mix them if you want to make the vinegar a bit sweeter. And I can do that for a quarter. No, you can't mix them. You can't mix them, I say. <laughs> he went Scottish there. <laughs> <laughs> I have the patent. I'll sue you. <laughs> no, I'll sue you, Shep said defiantly. Go right ahead. My brother-in-law is the county judge, and his wife is the crown attorney. The sheriff is alive because I treated his pneumonia last winter, and the deputy's baby is no longer colicky because I sold his wife some essential oils that are not medicinal but lovely in the nursery. <laughs> Mr. Shep, you are not a doctor. You are a charlatan, a scammer, a predatorial pusher of impostering potions. You should leave this town and stop taking advantage of lovely people with big hearts. And with that, Mr. Wellington turned and went into his apothecary's shop. Jimmy, Mr. Wellington's assistant, was standing behind the counter. Well, sir, Mr. Wellington, that's why I love working with you. You are wise and have a knack for alliteration. I have so much to learn from you. Well, thank you, Jimmy. But you are about to learn another lesson. What do you mean? Just watch. Jimmy turned his attention out of the shop window where, to his utter amazement, Dr. K.B. Shep was selling his vinegar and prune juice. What on earth? Jimmy exclaimed. What are they doing? They're buying into a lot, Jimmy, Mr. Willington said. But it won't work. Sure it will. Some people are nauseous and the vinegar will help. Some people are well bunged up and the prune juice will help. And other people will get better from their colds while taking the juice and then will credit the potion instead of their body's God-given ability to heal over time. But they're paying so much, Mr. Wellington. Why are they paying for it? Because, Jimmy, if it costs, it must be effective and real. And because people are hurting, son, and hurting people wish there was a way to cure their pain and they're willing to pay for it. People sure are stupid, Mr. Wellington. Not stupid, Jimmy. Just in pain. Now, if you don't mind watching the shop for a bit, I have an appointment with Mrs. Malady. I'm going to try my hand at beating her at chess this afternoon again. <laughs> Apparently, I don't learn my lessons easily either. The end. Now, stories are fun to tell, but a story in a church has to have a purpose, right? And Jesus' stories always had a parable. What's the point of this parable? Well, Scripture tells us that time and time again throughout history, mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served something other than their Creator. Someone other than the Creator. Why is that? Well, people are in pain, and they wish that they weren't, and in that vulnerable, vulnerable position, they buy into something that promises something to them. 
Now, in order to cure pain, you need two things. The first thing you need to cure pain is a proper diagnosis. Without a proper diagnosis, you can't cure what's ailing you. And the second thing you need is a proper or an appropriate prescription. You can have, a, a, uh, you can have the right diagnosis, but without a, an appropriate prescription, you can't cure the pain. That makes sense, right? You know, I sometimes have chest pains. It used to freak me out a little bit. It doesn't freak me out anymore. Um, when I started getting chest pains, I'd go to the hospital, and they'd hook me up to a machine, and then you know what would be the first thing they would do with me? They'd give me this disgusting little white liquid, a little cup of white liquid, and when you drank it, it would numb your throat all the way down into your chest. It would feel kind of weird and cooling. And why would they give that to you? <clears throat> well, they wanted to see if the chest pain you were experiencing was caused by a heart problem or acid reflux. Because indigestion or acid reflux, when it starts to burn, it can be hard to localize where the pain is coming from. So they eliminate the, the lesser of the two evils before they cut you open and do open heart surgery, which I'm grateful for because I've been there three times with acid reflux. And now I don't go to the hospital if I have chest pains, and I just hope that it still is acid reflux. <laughs> so you have to have the proper diagnosis. But the second thing is true, too. You know, sometimes I'll have a migraine and I'll go to the doctor. <clears throat> you know, if the doctor gives me that same white liquid for a migraine, it's not going to work. All you're going to be, you're going to end up with a bad taste in your mouth and still a headache if you get a prescription that doesn't work. So you need these two things. You need a proper diagnosis. You need an appropriate prescription in order to cure the pain that you're in. Now, what's true for physical conditions or sicknesses is also true for spiritual conditions. And if we're going to look at the world which is spiritually hurting right now, <clears throat> you know, there's a thousand different remedies that are being offered to the world right now for this spiritual sickness. <clears throat> but the question is, is what the world's selling really helping the problem? Are the different world religions diagnosing the human condition accurately? And if they are, is what they're prescribing actually working? You know, sometimes they get the diagnosis partly right, but they get the prescription completely wrong. And so for the rest of this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to examine what the world is prescribing to help our pain. And then we're going to look at the prescription a little bit and see how it compares to what Jesus is offering in the Bible. So we're going to look at some broad categories to start of what ails the world. Now, we're going to look at some world religions. I'm going to, I'm going to, we obviously can't look at all of them. There are so many. We're just going to look at the main ones, and we're just going to briefly assess them. We won't have time to look at them in depth. But we're going to group them into three categories. It's helpful to group things into categories to help you understand what's going on around you. So the first category is called theism. Theism means God. You believe in God. The, theo, comes from the, word Greek, the Greek word for God. So theology is the study. Ology means the study of. Theology means the study of God. If you are a theist, it means you believe in God. Now, there's three religions that are theistic that we are going to be uh, studying today. The first is Christianity. The second is Judaism. And the third is Islam. Interestingly, those Religions are all not just theistic, they are monotheistic. Mono means one, theism means God, so one God. You can also get religions that are polytheistic. Poly means many gods, but we're going to be looking at the monotheistic religions. The second category of, re of religion, or lack of religion, we're going to look at is atheism. So again, you have that word theism, it means God. But in the Greek, if you put a word, the, the letter A before a word, it means not. So somebody who is an atheist believes in not God, okay? 
If you talk to an atheist, they usually don't like that category because they say, how can you call me something that I don't even believe in? But for our purposes, it's not God. They are atheists. And they do have a symbol as well. It's that one. And then the third category we're going to be looking at today is called pantheism. Pan, so again you have theism, you have God in there, but pan, what does this word pan mean? It means a broad, wide scope. If you take a panorama picture, you're going to take a picture of the whole auditorium from side to side. If you have a panorama view of the mountains, you have a beautiful wide view of the mountains. And a pantheist is somebody who has a wide view of God. Okay, it means that they believe that God is in everything, or we are in God, or we are gods. Could be that they believe that, the, that nature is divine. Certainly they believe that a human being is divine. And we're going to look at two religions, Hinduism and Buddhism. But we're not going to start with pantheism or theism. We're going to start with atheism. What does an atheist say is wrong with humankind, and how do they say we should overcome it? Well, they do admit that there does seem to be something wrong with humankind, but their answer to that is certainly not religious in nature. Although, it's interesting that there are atheist churches springing up because people somehow, somewhere long to still be in community. No, their answer is this. If we work hard enough, we can overcome it. Or if we wait long enough, it will fix itself. Or we'll come to a solution. We need time and hard work, and we will be able to do anything. It's called humanism. Humanism is a branch of atheism whereby people say, look, humans are the answer to our own problems. In theism, God is the answer. In humanism, humans are the answer. I met a man once. He sat in my office, and we had a very interesting conversation. He said he fully believes that in a hundred years, science will be so advanced that we will no longer be dying of sickness. He says people will probably live for 200, 300, possibly forever in a hundred years because science will become so advanced. I said, too bad you're not going to be alive to see that. <laughs> Maybe your children will live forever or your children's children, but not you. Meanwhile, I'm going to be living forever. I will see it from heaven <laughs> if that happens. But then he said something that just made me, just about, like, I, I actually can usually contain my astonishment. He said something that actually made me, like, wig out a little bit. He said, and did you know, Tom, we're actually living in the most peaceful time in history. I said, what? I said, do you, do you read the news? Because I do like three or four times a day just to see if another bomb has gone off. Three or four times a day, and we're living at the most peaceful time in history. He had been influenced by a psychologist. He's a Harvard professor, this guy, he'd been, not the guy in my office, by a book by a guy named Steven Pinker. He wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. And he says we're living in the most peaceful time in history. And this is his rationale. This is his hypothesis. He says if you go back a, a thousand years when people were living in sort of these medieval towns and they were all at war with each other, you know, tribes were at war with each other and whatnot. Uh, they, the, it, was a, it, was a, it was a culture of warfare. And that is true, it was. So it would be kind of like Steinbeck has this wall around it, and we don't like the people from Blumenor. So every time, every so often, and you know, in spring when kings go to war, we would go to war against Blumenor, or they would come to war against us. And let's say there were 1,000 people at that time living in Steinbeck. No, 10,000 people. Let's go with 10,000 people. 10,000 people living in the walled city of Steinbeck, and Blumenor comes against us, and they kill 1,000 of us. Somebody help me, if you kill 1,000 out of 10,000, how many people have you killed? What percentage? 10%, very good, 
And, uh, okay, so that's a thousand years ago. Now fast forward a thousand years to today, and there's a hundred thousand people living in the vast metropolis of Steinbach. And Blumenort once again wants to try their hand at killing us. So they come and they kill five times as many people as they did a thousand years ago. They kill 5,000 people. Now what percentage of the population have they killed? Five percent. You see, it's a smaller percentage. So even though they killed five times as many people, the percentage per capita, the deaths per capita has gone down. We're living in the most peaceful time in history. That is a very interesting way of looking at violence. I emailed my uncle who uh, travels the world. His wife is on a humanitarian committee. They go all over the world working for, for peace. I said, what do you make of this guy, Steven Pinker? And he says, well, Steven Pinker has a very short view of history. I said, you're right. You know, it's true. If you look back maybe 40 years, a couple decades, it's, it's, there has, since you know the Vietnam War and, and maybe the World Wars, there hasn't been conflict on a global scale at least, right? But the problem is that if we talk about history, to look back only a few decades is not the way you approach history. That's very short-sighted. And if you were to look pa past that to about 150 years, you know what you would find? That there have been more people killed in wars in the last 150 years than all the years combined before that. In all of the wars ever, if you were to take all the casualties and add them up, they would not add up to the number of people who have died in casualties as casualties of war in the last 150 years. That's shocking. And you know what? Just because we live between two wars doesn't mean, just because we're in a time of peace doesn't mean that we're not on the brink of war at any time. You never know what's going to happen. Just a crackpot with an itchy finger or a bad cat could start the next war. I'll just let you get it. <laughs> because it would be a cat that starts the Third World War. <laughs> and not only that, but statements like that fail to recognize my definition of violence. You and I think is, a is, a, is an appropriate addition to that definition of violence in addition to warfare and murder. What about the killing of 100,000 unborn children in Canada every single year? 100,000 children. Every five and a half minutes, every five and a half minutes, another life is snuffed out from within a womb. Is that not violence? Horrendous violence. And what about the 2,000 lives that were lost since assisted suicide became legal in Canada? 2,000 people lost their lives at the hands of doctors who were meant to save them and improve their quality of life into death, not hurry them towards death. In the last week, there have been two articles on the BBC that have talked about euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide. One was, of a, the most recent one was a 104-year-old in Australia. He's just done. His quality of life is going down. Well, of course it is. He's 104. But that doesn't mean that you take your life into your own hands. Now, Australia doesn't allow euthanasia. They're more advanced as a culture than we are. So he's flying to Switzerland to die, where it's been legal, euthanasia has been legal since the 1940s. More civilized. There was another story about a couple in the early 70s who wanted to die. 
They were both somewhat sick, but the man, the husband, did not qualify for assisted suicide because you have to qualify. His wife did, but she didn't want to do it without him. So they waited long enough, and they figured his heart was, was getting bad enough now that they could finally end their life together. So they got their family together and their doctor, and they ended their lives together. Early 70s. And I just think, who might have God arranged for them to meet? What could they have added still to society? So this is violence. And David, or, uh, Stephen Pinker doesn't realize that. The man who sat in my office doesn't realize that. This whole idea of humanism that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and things will get better. No, no, no. We have more uh, drug-resistant bugs than ever before. For goodness sakes, I looked it up. There are actually mosquitoes that are becoming pesticide-resistant. Mosquitoes. That's crazy talk and bad news. <laughs> Things are not getting better for all our scientific advancements. They're not. We're getting more creative. We're prolonging health. Certainly we are. But things are not actually going to get to the place where we eradicate death. And this idea that people can be good without God, good on their own, by whose standards of good? You know who believed very strongly in euthanasia? Hitler. Why? To make the human race stronger. Let's exterminate weaker cultures than ours, who we perceive as weaker. Let's also eradicate anybody who has a mental handicap, who is old, who is sick. They're taking money from the state. Hitler believed that. No, we can't be good without God. John 6, verse 63 says this. The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. Nothing. And I want you to keep this verse in mind. Human effort accomplishes nothing. Remember that today. One of the most wicked times to be on earth would have admittedly be right in Genesis 6 when God was about to destroy the world with a flood. We would agree with that, right? But did you know that after the flood, in Genesis 8, God said, I will never again destroy the world with a flood, even though man's every inclination is towards evil. Before the flood, it was towards evil. After the flood, it's been towards evil. Since the garden, it's been towards evil. You can bet today it's towards evil. We can be more creative. We can be hiding it. But our hearts are evil without God. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the human heart is a wicked thing. So atheism falls flat. It doesn't offer any hope. It actually doesn't offer any hope. And I had a professor once who said, Tom, I really don't care. I don't care that after I die, I'm going to become worm food. I really don't care. I said, well, I care. I have a hope of eternity. It says that God has written eternity on our hearts. I don't believe him, actually. What does Hinduism say? There are approximately one billion Hindus in the world today. One billion. It's uh, widely understood that Hinduism is the oldest religion. It's the oldest religion, really, because we just don't know when it started. You know, as a Christian, we would say, you know, maybe like Judaism, actually Yahwehism, the worship of Yahweh is the oldest religion. But if you don't believe that, then it's Hinduism from the world's perspective. So Hinduism is very, very old. They have very, very old uh, books, but there's no founder. Hinduism does not have a Jesus. It does not have a Muhammad. It does not have a Moses. It does not have a Buddha. It has none of that. There is no founder of Hinduism. They have two books, two holy books. One is called the Vedas, which are like uh, sacred hymns. The other is called the Upanishads. Those are like epic poems about their gods. All right? And these are their two holy books. They're widely contradictory. They don't say the same thing. And nobody knows who's written them except that they're very, very old. 
Hindus believe that within, your, within you, you have what's called an Atman, which is your soul. Now, the person you think you are, your emotions, your thoughts, your personality, your body, all of those things are just the crust or the shell around your Atman. Your Atman is your true you. And they say that when you die, it is your Atman that survives. But it does not survive in eternity, in, in, in the sense that we understand it. it. It gets reborn into another shell, into another personality. So your true you, after you die, is transferred and put into a new shell. That's what they believe. It's called reincarnation. Death, birth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth. <clears throat> cycles and cycles and cycles of this. <clears throat> Now, why? Why must you die and be reborn and die and reborn? It's because during your life, you're paying off what's called karma. Karma is the bad things that you've done in your past lives. Not that you were responsible for them. You can't remember them. But you are paying right now for your karma. It's completely determined by fate. And so if you have cancer today, it's because in one of your previous lives, you were bad. You were maybe a thief or a, or, or a, a murderer. If you're bullied on the school playground, it's because you were bad. Maybe you were a bully in your past life, and now you have to pay off that karma. And that's what happens over and over and over and over again. And not only that, but bad karma or karma determines in which level of society you're going to be born. So there's different levels of society, not officially anymore, but religiously it's still there. You have the very highest class, which is the priestly class, and you have the very lowest class. They're actually below the lowest class. They're called the untouchables. These are the people that Mother Teresa worked with, the cripples and the beggars. And if you're born at the very lowest caste, it's not because you're bad. It's because you've done something bad in a previous life. There's nothing you can do to get out of that caste. In this life, you have to die and be reborn. So what's the only escape is death. And one of the fruit of belief in this system is first of all, high suicide rates and extreme pride if you're at the top. Extreme pride. <clears throat> what does Hinduism say is the problem with mankind? Well, this is the problem. You just don't know you're divine. You don't know that you're a supernatural entity, that your Atman is eternal and will live forever, that you, can, you are actually God. That's the problem. And what's the diet or what's the prescription? It's very simple. You got to know that you're God. So if we meet your ignorance with knowledge, then you'll learn that you are divine and you will be free from this cycle of death and rebirth. You'll, you'll actually gain enlightenment and enter into moksha. Now, there are three ways that you can find freedom from the cycle of death and rebirth. All of them have to do with knowledge, gaining knowledge. The first is this. The first is called the way of good works. In this, the salvation is gained through the worship of various deities through sacrifices in temples. Various deities. There, there's a 330 million deities in, in Hinduism. And there are some main deities. Okay, there are some main deities. And those main deities have names like Brahman, Brahma, Vishnu, Krishna, uh, Shiva, these different names, okay? And Normally, when we're doing the way of good works, you're worshiping one of those main deities, all right? I think that's how it goes. And you'll offer sacrifices. You'll put food at the altar. You'll, you'll burn. You'll do uh, temple rituals, all sorts of things like this. Ravi Zacharias talks about a milk festival for one of the gods in, Hin in India <clears throat> where they just pour gallons and gallons and gallons of milk over a stone statue. It says it runs down the street, and there's flies, and it's gross, but they're trying to earn the appeasement through good works to this god. Pardon me. 
Somebody handed me a Kleenex after the service yesterday because apparently I was sniffling. <laughs> so hopefully I won't today. <sighs> Why is it right after you wipe your nose, you have to do one little extra sniffle just to be sure? All right, sorry about that. It's middle school weekend. We can talk about sniffling. All right, what is the second way of knowledge? Oh, no, the second way of earning salvation, it's called the way of knowledge. Salvation comes primarily through the practice of meditation and intuition. This is where we get yoga from. Yoga is an exercise that's meant to connect you with Hindu gods. Do you know that Hindu gods are false gods? And do you know that false gods are demons? This is why I don't do yoga, even as an exercise. Actually, this is why I avoid all exercise. No chance. I will not accidentally stretch in a Hindu pose if I never exercise. But I'm serious. I don't do it. Because I don't want to engage in an ancient Hindu practice. Then there is the way of devotion. Salvation is gained through devotion to a personal deity who gives the worshiper grace to overcome bad karma. So this is different than offering sacrifices. This is more like you'll have a household idol where you go and you can leave some sacrifices for it. <clears throat> you worship it, you pray for it. And that God, that household God in return, just gives you grace to overcome and become saved. You'll notice something though. There's no God coming down and helping you overcome. It's all you working hard to try and earn salvation. Very hard. And you'll never know. You'll never know when you get there until you get there. And it's very kind of, who cares? Because if I don't get there this time, I'll get there next time. If you were to run into a Hindu and you were to say to them, you know, uh, I'm a Christian, they'd say, well, that's nice. You'll get it right in your li next lifetime. So there's no, there's no consequence, Right? You just keep living and being reborn. But it's all human effort. And by the way, in Hinduism, there are gods who have come down and been incarnated on earth. There are some gods who have done this. But you have to understand, they come down for a very different purpose than our Jesus. Just because there's a myth about a god in Hinduism coming down to earth, and there is a truth about Jesus coming down to earth, and they're both gods, does not make it the same story. They are completely different in why they came. They are completely different in what they accomplished. And they are completely different in where they went and what they're doing now. It is totally different, except for one tiny little thread of the same story. In Ephesians, the Bible teaches us that you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. This boasting thing is a big deal. Look, if you can save yourself, you should boast. Oh, but be careful. Pride is the root of many sins. It's pride. It's very, very deceptive to think that you can save yourself. But this is what the Bible teaches. It's a gift of God. It's humbling. Even God humbled himself to save us, and it's humbling for us to accept his love. It's very humbling. But we can trust the Bible over what Hinduism teaches. Now, we can trust it. I'm going to give you just three reasons that we can trust it over the Hindu scriptures. The first is the Bible does not contradict itself, but the Hindu scriptures do. You know, there's people who try to point out all the contradictions of the Bible. I can give you a book. It's this big. It's this big that refutes every single so supposed 
contradiction in the Bible. Every one. There are no contradictions in the Bible that when the Bible is properly understood does not unravel itself and you go, oh, that makes sense now. The Hindu scriptures all contradict each other. In fact, if you were to talk to five different Hindus, you'd get five different versions of Hinduism. Because you can pick and choose. You can do your own way of salvation. You can choose to follow this God or that God. It can look like this or like that. So they're con and they're contradictory. They don't make sense together like the Bible does. The Bible teaches a virtuous life that was exemplified in Christ Jesus. The Hindu gods are the opposite of virtuous. There's very little in a Hindu god that you would want to imitate. Very, very little. And then we have the fact that the Bible makes proven claims outside itself. It claims historical events and authors. The Hindu scriptures do none of this. They're myths. They, don't, they say themselves. Hindus say themselves. They don't know who wrote the Vedas. Well, how can it be, how can there be any sort of authority given to a book that you don't even know who it was written by? How can that happen? No, the Bible stands alone. And if the Bible stands alone against the Hindu scriptures, at least the Hindu scriptures, then we can probably go with what the Bible says, which is you cannot be saved through human effort. It is a free gift of God. And we can reject the Hindu teaching that we can save ourselves. Now, what does Buddhism say? There are approximately 500 million adherents to Buddhism. We're talking about billions and millions of people here who do not know the truth of Jesus Christ, and it's tragic. Buddha is not a name. It's a title. It should be the Buddha. The Buddha means the enlightened one. So if you were to run into the Buddha, he would say, you'd say, hello, Buddha. He'd say, no, I am the Buddha. It's like maybe like pastor or something like that, okay? That's what it means. His name was Siddh Siddhartha Gautama, and he was a Hindu, and he was born into a good caste. All right? He lived, I think, around the same time as Daniel, which is very interesting. And he was born into a good caste in the Hindu society. He was in a, in a merchant class, so he was quite wealthy. But he was disillusioned with the answers of Hinduism, so he left. He left his riches, his family, he left his wife and his young child, and he never went back, and he went on a quest to find enlightenment, the answer to life. What did the Buddha say was the problem with humankind? He said this. He said, the problem is there's suffering. Now, how are we going to uh, overcome suffering? Well, we must overcome suffering by overcoming desire. If you don't desire, you will no, no longer suffer. So the prescription is get rid of desire, you'll get rid of suffering. Now, this makes sense in some ways. Again, there's always this little shred of the truth. Let's say you're a young man in your 30s and you're still not married and you're in Steinbeck. Like, the crowd is thinning, right? And so you're looking around, and you're saying, who can I marry? And then a Buddhist comes to you and says, get rid of the desire to, to marry. If you get rid of the desire, you will no longer suffer in being single. And you go, yes. If I get rid of the desire to be married, I'll no longer suffer being married. Or not being married. <laughs> Wishing I was married. If you get rid of the desire for food, I'll no longer desire food. Therefore, food will no longer control me. Now think about it. We do a month of, of, of prayer and fasting where we talk about food should not control you. Very different. Very different. There's some problems with Buddhism. The first one is logical, so think with me here. If I want to get rid of desire to stop suffering, is not wanting to do something a desire? 
So now I desire to get rid of desire. Do you see the problem? You cannot desire. I can't want to get rid of desire. That would be desiring to get rid of desire. Now I'm back in suffering because I can't get rid of desire, so now I'm just going to suffer endlessly. Do you understand how circular that is? How depressing that must be? How, how you can't ever break out of this cycle? It's a tragedy. The other thing is this. Jesus said desire is good within parameters. What are those parameters? He gave us some. In Scripture, it says in, in Psalm Oh, 37, delight yourself in the Lord. I forgot the second part. Uh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give your, you the desires of your heart. Look, if you delight yourself in gambling, you will not get the desires of your heart. They will never be met. If you delight yourself in the Lord, you will get the desires of your heart. Those are the parameters, right? He says that desire, desires of a righteous person will be granted. Not the desires of a fool, not the desires of a sinner, the desires of a righteous person. And by the way, you can desire hunger and thirst for righteousness because you'll be satisfied. So Jesus said, look, desire is very good within certain parameters. It's completely different than what Buddhism teaches. Buddhism teaches that all desire is bad because it leads to suffering. If you desire something you can't have, you suffer. Jesus says, no, no, no. Desire is very good because it draws you to me. It's very good. God created us to enjoy relationships and get married and eat and, and celebrate and all these wonderful things that make us alive. Amen. Buddhism is nothing like that. So that was pantheism. Let's move now to theism. What do these three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam say? Did you know that they all diagnose the human problem the same? All three of them have the same diagnosis of the human problem. If you are spiritually sick, it's because you've rebelled against God. That's who you've rebelled against. Now, they might have different names for God, different understandings of who that God is, but essentially with human beings, your problem is you rebelled against God. What do Jews say is the prescription according, uh, uh, according to Scripture? What do Jews say will get you solved or fixed. Well, it used to be that they would offer sacrifices in the temple. You kill a goat, you kill a sheep, you kill a pigeon, and those will make peace with God. But the interesting thing is, even that was never meant to be the ultimate answer. In Hebrews, we, say, we read this. In Hebrews 9, it says, the Messiah has appeared, the high priest of the good things that have to come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered the most holy place for all, not by blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling on those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? How much more will he cleanse our conscience? Those animals were only like a prophetic photograph. Every time they killed a lamb, it was meant to prepare a whole culture so that when the perfect lamb of God came, they would recognize him. They needed the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. An animal could not be killed for a human sin. They were not on par. It needed to be a human paying for a human. That's what it needed to be. So the sacrifices in the Old Testament, those are done now. And very few Jews today actually practice sacrifices anymore. They don't have a temple to do it anyways. 
So what do they say if you're a modern religious Jew? What do they say is the answer to sin? Just be good. Just be good. Be a good Jew. And hopefully when you die, you will go to heaven. Hopefully. But how good is good enough? You know what it sounds a lot like? Human effort. Human effort accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes nothing. What about Islam? Islam was founded long after Christianity, about six or 700 years after Christianity is when Muhammad lived. It's said that Muhammad would meditate in a cave. And when he was about 40 years old, he started getting visitations by the angel Gabriel. Now listen to me. Just because two stories have the same name and it does not mean they're the same person. The angel Gabriel in the Quran is very different than the angel Gabriel in our Bible. Very, very, very different. Don't be tricked into thinking they're the same thing. Just because the Quran talks about Jesus, they call him Isa in the Quran, does not mean they are talking about the same Jesus or the same quality of the Jesus that we learn about in the Bible. There are major differences. Anyways, Muhammad would come out of these caves after hearing from the angel, and he would recite these, these uh, declarations that the angel had been giving him, these revelations. And so they were all written down on little pieces of of, of leaf and paper and that kind of thing, and they were collected. And those collections became the Quran. The Quran actually means to recite or recitation. That's what it means. All right? But do you know what the answer is in the Quran to making things right with God? There isn't one. They say you need to be a Muslim to go to paradise and that you need to be a good Muslim. But even a Muslim, when they die, will get all their good deeds and their bad deeds put into a balance and they'll see which one outweighs the other. And you cannot know before you get there which one will win. And if your bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. And if the good outweighs the bad, you go to paradise. Did you know that even the prophet Muhammad, when he died, did not know whether he was going to go to paradise? In fact, there's a story about him. He was, his niece was there while he was dying, and they were having this conversation. And he said, even the prophet, he's speaking of himself in the third person, even the prophet does not know whether he will enter paradise. Even the prophet. He said, so pray for me. And that command, so pray for me, even after I'm gone, is why, if you ever hear or read Muslim, uh, a Muslim speak or write, they always put, after they say the name Muhammad, they put a little parenthesis. Okay, it's a, and they always put, peace be upon him. So they'll say, Muhammad, peace be upon him. They'll write Muhammad, they'll put in parentheses, peace be upon him. And the reason they do that is literally every time they say the prophet's name, they're still praying for him that Allah would be merciful and allow him into paradise because they don't know if their prophet is there. How is there any hope in a religion that does not even have room in its paradise for its founder? It's empty. But what about Christianity? The Christian story is a very simple one. People were created for a relationship with God. And when they sinned, they destroyed that relationship. Sin always pushes people apart. Always. Even if you sin against a human being, it will destroy that relationship. It will cause separation. We understand that. If a man who is married kisses a woman who is not his wife, it separates the relationship between him and his wife. Sin always separates, always separates. And the great dilemma of humankind was, how do we get right with this God that we're separated from? How do we get right with him? Because you see, there's a difference between sin towards people and sin towards God. It's not on the same level. When a creature who's been created, sins against their creator. It's a cosmic sin. 
And C.S. Lewis said, we do not have a high enough view of sin. We do not understand how bad it is. He says, sin is not the bad things we do. It is high treason against the most high God, the most high king. God is a king. And if a king, if a subject in a kingdom committed treason, it is the death penalty. And sin is treason against God. And what does Romans say? You get the death penalty. So how does a human being overcome this chasm of death and get towards God? He needs a mediator. He needs somebody to come and bridge that gap who was a human but lived a perfect life, did not sin like the rest of us, so that when he died, he could accept all of the sins of humankind on himself, and when he rose from the dead, he conquered it all. And Romans 10 verse 9 says it's very simple to become a Christian. Two steps. If you confess with your mouth, that means you speak. You say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be healed of your spiritual sickness. It's so simple. But can I tell you what the tragedy of Christianity is? The tragedy of Christianity is that in every other religion, you have to do, do, do. In Christianity, it's done, and yet people still don't accept it. It's almost too good to be true for a lot of people, I think. You know, it's as if you were dying of cancer, and we know that there is one drug that cures everything. One drug. It's standing right there. But it's too much work. It costs too much. I don't want the side effects of taking that drug, even though it will cause me to live, even though it will cure me. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the prescription that will cure the human condition, and people don't want it. And it's tragic. They walk by it, and they walk by, and they walk by, and they walk by. Doing and doing and doing and doing. When all they have to do is say, Jesus, you're Lord. I believe that you're Lord. Please lead my life. So simple. There is no religion on the face of the earth that has what Christianity has. Scour the globe. Look for it. Study the world religion. See if you can find another religion where the creator went down to his rebellious, treasonous creation and died for them so that they could live with him again. Try and find it. You will not. Christianity stands head and tails above every other religion ever invented by man or spiritual forces. It is bar none the most incredible faith in the world. Amen. Now I want to talk to you grade eights for a minute. We're very intentional about what we teach our grade eights. All of our middle school students, all of our children. And today we're welcoming you into the adult service, and that is a great thing. And do you know why? It's because we don't want you to remain children. We don't want you to remain as what the Bible calls infants in the faith. We want you to learn truth at a new level now. In Ephesians 4, verse 14, it says this, Then we will no longer be like children, forever changing our minds about what we believe because someone has told us different or cleverly lied to us and made the lie sound like truth. And we want you at this age not to have all your answers figured out, but to be in a place where you're exposed to truth at a different level. And that's why we're welcoming you here today. And the adults in this service, they're behind you. And they love you. And they want you to know how loved you are by the Father. 
So what I want to do now is I want, the, I want you to be brave, okay? If you are in grade 8, why don't you stand up real quick? Just stand up. I won't make you stand for long. It won't be embarrassing for too long, I promise. But the faster you stand up, the faster it goes, okay? So just stand up now. Good. It's like ripping a bandage off. There we go. Okay. If you see a grade 8 student around you, when you stand up, why don't you put your hand on them? You can actually touch them. You could, if they let you. So why don't we stand and surround our grade 8 students and let's pray for them. Let's pray for all our students as a church, but let's pray especially for the grade 8s today as we conclude the service. Father, I pray for the grade 8 students in this auditorium today and those who call Southland their church family. I pray, God, that they would never be deceived by a lie that was invented by human cunning or the elemental forces of evil in the world. I pray, God, that the more they are exposed to the truth and the more they spend time with you, your name is truth. I pray that the more they spend time with you, the more they will be able to recognize a lie. And Jesus, I pray for everyone in this room that we would come closer to the truth of who you are today, that we would be able to recognize what is the cure for the human condition, that as we feel locked inside ourselves and we don't know which way to go, God, that we would come into contact with you, the great physician, and that you would not only set us free from the lies that we believe, but that you would set us free into truth, You'd speak truth to us, Jesus. I pray these things all by the precious name of the living God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.